0: The following is part of the a1-wrestling.com podcast family. Hello there, old school wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, of a1-wrestling.com, welcoming you to another episode of classic wrestling memories and we got a very unique show for you this week folks we are going back to some of the oldest of the old school the early 20th century and we're going to talk about one of the most influential groups in all of wrestling history and the the strange thing is only one of them really was on camera with any regularity we are talking the gold dust trio and i don't have to do it alone i do have joining me my co-host from the asylum in South Kakalaki,
1: Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Wrestling fans, we're going to take it way back uh, in this episode. And uh, this is some interesting stuff. I hope you all enjoyed. I had some fun researching it, and I think you did too, didn't you, Seth? Yeah,
0: it's definitely an era that's not my forte. I mean, I had heard of some of these names. I, I really, I'd heard of two of them, really, with uh, Tootsmont and uh, Ed Strangler Lewis. And really to kind of talk about the the gold dust trio, we kind of have to go back and describe the state of wrestling at the time before Strangler Lewis, Billy Sandow and Toots Month came along to kind of shake up the scenery. So uh, if you'd be so kind train to kind of give us a a guideline, as far as the early 20th century, what the state of wrestling was, was like.
1: Yeah. You're going back as far as, as we know. Um, You know, of course, it's pretty well documented that those wrestling had its roots in the carnivals. And these were, you know, events that they could put on in the sideshows, the athletic sideshows of the carnivals, along with the strong man and stuff like that. These guys were essentially, these were all shooters. This was not a work at that point. So we're talking, you know, 1880s up till 1918, 1920 and there. Uh, You're talking the era of Joe Stecker and the great Gama and Hackenschmidt and – gotch and farmer burns and some of these other names that our listeners you know the wrestling fans out there might have heard of before these guys are all legitimate hookers and shooters and wrestling uh it's it, it was very different than what uh, we have today wrestling was usually just like one match and it would be two guys that were well known in their area and a promoter would pit them against each other with no undercard and, and if there was an undercard, it might only be one or two other matches. And these were legitimate wrestling matches. Uh, the These guys w- would take each other down and try to put each other in holds and jockey for position. And it was not unheard of for matches to go two, three, four hours sometimes. I mean, uh, we get bored with a, a four or five, you know, is it seven hours WrestleMania is now. <laughs> Can yeah. you imagine watching just two guys rolling around on the ground? Uh, exchanging what would be called, quote-unquote, rest holds nowadays.
0: And a lot of those matches, they might have been two out of three falls. And like you said, it it's pretty much was just straight through, guys on the mat, rolling around, try, trying to get another, another hold. And this is just my speculation. And I, I'm sorry mm-hmm. if I'm getting ahead of you here, but it's just my speculation that seeing two men essentially grapple for hours on end when sports like baseball and football or maybe even hockey, you know, very action-oriented sports, i think right. stuff like that really kind of made audiences look at traditional wrestling and just find it dull. I mean, am i off base yeah. by saying that?
1: No, i think you're right. I think that um, you know, even boxing had obviously more action and and some of these matches didn't even have rings. I mean, they would be on maybe elevated platforms or just if it was a small match, it might be I don't know, like a barn or or a bar, the biggest building in the town, and they, you know, clear out an area on the floor and draw a circle, and the guys win in at, you know. And I think that a unique thing about that era of wrestling, and this is my take on it, because obviously I wasn't there, and unfortunately no one that was there, either participant or spectator, is with us anymore, so we have to go off of second and third and fourth-hand accounts. I kind of get a feeling that the fan base back then was probably not that dissimilar from the fan base now. We've often talked on other podcasts, both you and I have, that we've kind of lamented the fact that the fans are like just these diehard wrestling fans now, and there's not the casual fans anymore. And uh, I think that was probably true in the early days too, that these were people who really just enjoyed that form of sports. And so that's who, and, uh, and quite frankly, The bulk of the money that was generated, the revenue generated back in that time was off, not off ticket sales or off of obviously, you know, they had television, they didn't have radio, so they weren't going to get any revenues from that. It was off gambling, off side bets. Uh, Sometimes, you know, the wrestlers themselves would make more money by having their uh, advanced men make side bets in the town before they got there, you know, (laughs) than they would from the actual winner's purse. So, it was just a very, very different era. But that all changed around 1918. And that's what we're really going to focus on this show. And that was the birth of what essentially was the first wrestling promotion and a major shift from the style we're talking about to more what we're used to today. And that was brought about by a group called the Gold Dust Trio. So I want you to share with the listeners, Xandrax. What, who the Gold dust Trio were what they kind of did around 1918, 1920 that changed everything?
0: Well, the Gold dust Trio were, of course, three guys. Uh, the first one worth mentioning is a man by the name of Billy Sandow. And yes, for the record, for trivial reasons, that is the same Sandow where Damian Sandow got his name. Uh, he was a wrestler and uh, had kind of lost his fortune, so to speak, but he got into... Wrestling, and basically became the business manager. And he he would promote He would promote events. Uh, he'd be the guy that the wrestlers would talk to about uh, getting hirings. And he had met up with a man who's now in the WWE Hall of Fame, Ed Strangler Lewis. And they met through the mutual acquaintance of Farmer Burns. The third part of the trio is a man, Joseph Mont, who went by, by the nickname of Toots because he had a very baby face look to him, look, he, very young.
1: And he was also the youngest of the three, which I think probably had something to do with it, too. But anyway. Yeah,
0: and it was and it was uh, Farmer Burns that also discovered Toots, right?
1: Yeah, Farmer Burns had actually ran a correspondence course. He was one of the early pioneer guys we were talking about just a little while ago. And he had a famous correspondence course where he essentially had an a, a illustrated book that you could learn shoot-holds in. But he had actually personally trained Ed Strangler-Lewis. But both Mons, as far as, as far as I can remember, he had both Mons and, and Sandow had learned how to wrestle through his correspondence course. So that was the, I guess, the, the, the link between all three of them, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm.
0: So really how the three of them did their business is Strangler Lewis was the wrestler. Billy Sandow handled the money and the promotion. And Toots, a more modern word to describe him, would have been the booker. And mm-hmm. these three guys are really kind of kind of the the, the the controlling factor in changing wrestling from being what was pretty much a shoot into into the work with high impact moves and finishes. Uh, Toots, it was Toots's idea to put time limits on the matches. Uh, it was Toots's idea to have count outs and such, so you could do these non finishes, which would then bring the crowd back next time to try to see a finish. You know, they, they, they have a 60-minute uh, time limit draw. Well, next time, maybe, maybe it'll be a 90-minute match. And right. Toots is also credited with coming up with what he called slam-bang Western-style wrestling, which combined elements of traditional wrestling, boxing, and other sports. Uh, and so wrestlers were no longer just grappling and trying to get each other to the mat. This is when we started getting body slams and suplexes and back suplexes, and, and, and stuff like that.
1: Right. I think a, a good way to look at the three of them, a modern-day analogy, or at least not modern-day, but more current, would be Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan, Pat Patterson. Billy Sandow is is Vince McMahon, Ed Strangler-Lewis is the Hulk Hogan, and, and Pat Patterson is the Toots Mons. Or eighty Graham, Dusty Rhodes, Kevin Sullivan. I mean, you get the idea. So. They, all three of them were smart guys, and all three of them had ideas and, and, and worked as a team. But the dynamic you laid out was exactly what it was. You know, I mean, uh, essentially, that was, the, you know, they understood their roles, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: But this is really how it all worked, is Strangler Lewis was their champion, and right. they actually turned their show into a traveling show which obviously promotions do that all the time now, You never, except for a few exceptions, most promotions go to different cities. So Lewis was the, the traveling champion with Sandow booking the events and uh, promoting the events and essentially hiring the opponents. And Toots would handle the finishes. Obviously, the vast majority of the time, Strangler Lewis would win. There were a few people that he would put over and then he'd win the title back. Strangler Lewis held their world title really for the better part of a decade in in the 20s. -hmm. Four different times. He did drop it four times. And Toots also served as what the business would call the policeman, meaning if there was somebody who didn't like the finish or, as they say, would want to go into business for himself, uh, they had to answer to Toots either, either backstage or, quite frankly, in the ring where Toots would shoot on him. Now, the policeman is a role that is not really done anymore in wrestling as a whole, certainly not in WWE, just because there's no need for one. You know, it's what Vince wants, Vince gets. But back in the last several decades, really up until probably around the 90s when the when the territories phased out, that was a role that was definitely very real and very needed in wrestling. So now that we've done done a once-over on the roles of each of the gold dust trio why don't we do train why don't we take a break and when we come back we will dive into a a little more about the careers of each individual in the gold dust trio this is classic wrestling memories and we'll be right back you never know who's gonna show up on the a1 podcast
1: What's up all you stars and stars, this is former WWE Diva Maria Canais. Hey, what's up everybody, it's Eva Lee from Lucha Underground, a.k.a. the baddest bitch in the building, a.k.a. La Figaria.
0: I'm Victor Leanti of House of Hardcore. This is Jason Kincaid and you're listening to the A1 Podcast.
1: This is Dylan Sosmore, the leader of Exceptional Exotic, the fastest rising group in the national wrestling alliance. What's up everybody, this is the morning star, William Huckabee. This is Mr. Saturday Night Michael Barrett. This is Allison Kay, and you are listening to the A1 Wrestling Podcast on a1-wrestling.com. Hey, everybody. This is Jock Sampson, the Appalachian Outlaw, and you're listening to the A1 Podcast, baby. Get tall. Hi, this is Gregory Iron from TWO. You are listening to the A1 Wrestling Podcast, where wrestling and pop culture
0: collide.
1: This is the only podcast that's Jimmy Rave approved.
0: Now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Geekville Radio. Geekville Radio is a show dedicated to news and subjects in the world of geekery. Superheroes, science fiction, comics, gaming, TV. If it qualifies as something for nerds or geeks, you'll find it at Geekville Radio. From one quarter of the creative team that brings you the A1 podcast, Geekville Radio is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at geekvilleradio.com. gaming-oriented podcast, then look no further than You Just Got Frag. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of enthusiasts as they talk the news and video games, achievements, and of course the gripe of the week. That's all at youjustgotfragged.com part of the a one wrestlingcom podcast family. Alright, welcome back wrestling fans to volume 3 of Classic Wrestling Memories. We are going to continue to talk the Gold Dust Trio only for the second half of the show here we are going to focus on the individual names of the stable. And we'll start it off with the man who handled the money, kind of a, the, the manager, and that, of course, is Billy Sandow. And once again, that the name Damien Sandow took, the Sandow part of it, was in tribute to Billy Sandow. So, Train, if you want to take the floor here and tell our listeners about who Billy Sandow was and what his contributions were to the wrestling business.
1: Oh, okay. Well, Billy Sandow was actually born William Balman. In September 4th, 1884, uh, he was from that pioneer era we're talking about. He was a middleweight wrestler. Like you stated, he took his ring name, uh, or Damien Sandow took his ring name as a tribute to him. Well, <laughs> William Bowman actually took his as a tribute to a, or it's speculated, I should say. We're not sure. Took his name as a tribute to a Carnival Strongman at the time who was quite famous across the globe named Eugene Sandow. So, Damien is actually attributed to a tribute, if you want to look at it that way. But, but Sandow was a shooter. He was that old school pioneer style. Um, he had learned through Farmer Burns' correspondence course that I spoke of earlier and was a pretty good wrestler. Was never, um, was never you know, like, um, I guess the, the modern term would be upper Mid Carter. Was never a, like a huge world title contender, mm-hmm. uh, but was a good hooker and a good shooter and had kind of gotten out of the wrestling business around world war one and you know um (laughs) shock of shocks this this should just sound funny because everything uh uh, everything new is everything old is new again he opened up gyms (laughs) how shocking a former wrestler opens up gyms right uh but they called them health clubs at the time and he was a notorious gambler a notorious risk taker but was quite you know quite savvy but sometimes would take a gamble and lose Mm -hmm. and actually lost all his gyms in a bet uh, he bet Frank Beale, another wrestler of that era, who is who the Beale is named for the the hip toss like throw out of the corner. They your announcers called a Beale sometimes. It's named after Frank, Fred Beale, but he lost a match to him where he gambled his fortunes, uh, you know, put his fortunes up and lost. And looking for things to do, he wrote a series of books about training and and how and how to shoot. Um, Those sold okay, but he really turned his mind towards promoting and managing, and he began to manage Ed Stranger-Lewis, which we'll talk about in a little bit, Uh, but he was introduced to Ed Stranger-Lewis through Farmer Burns, the man whom he had taken this correspondence course to learn to be a wrestler himself. Ed Lewis was an actual direct student of Farmer Burns and he became very intrinsically tied with with Strangler Lewis in the public's eye and Strangler Lewis had said before his death many times that you know Sandow was a great sparring partner and a great business manager for him uh, he could he could get <clears throat> and uh, the headlock and several of the holds that Strangler Lewis would make famous even his stranglehold his sleeper hold was you know that Billy Sandow helped him develop it and I think that, you know, a manager in that era was similar to like a manager for what we would see for a boxer today. You know, it was it, because it was a legitimate sport at that point. Um, Sandai really was a manager. You know, he probably he handled Ed's uh, travel expenses or, you know, his travel arrangements and training regime. He would get ahead of the town and find out where the gym was. He could work out, line up sparring partners, was truly a manager. Um, and as the Gold Dust Trio became to be, and they they cooked up this plan, he was the one that was naturally the one that was going to be the one who would go out and do all the legwork beforehand. He was the one that would book towns, book the arenas, so to speak, uh, get with the local media, which at the time was, of course, this newspaper, to to really talk up the. The match is coming and, and to get, like I said earlier, if you look at analogy, he was Vince McMahon. You know, he was truly the promoter. Uh, and he, he he was really good at, at playing up the something that you'll talk about with Toots. Uh, the idea of, of, which was new at the time, but, you know, it was normal now. The heel versus face and that kind of thing. And, and you know, make one guy seem really, really like the guy you wanted to cheer for in the media and the other guy you wanted to boo and one of his most famous uh promotional ideas which i think is once again revolutionary for 1922 when he did it but seems passe nowadays uh was he openly threw a challenge out for ten thousand dollars to jack dempsey of course was the world heavyweight boxing champion at the time claiming that ed lewis could beat any could beat jack dempsey and any ring in the world, and he would put ten thousand dollars up to prove it. And uh, there were legitimate talks with, with Jack Kearns, who was who was Jack Dempsey's manager. And it never came to fruition, uh, but the talk about it stayed around for a long time. And Kearns kind of kept it going along with Sandow. And it's it's been speculated decades after the fact by Sports Illustrated. That Kearns just did it to keep Dempsey's name in in the the public light, but he had no intention of putting Jack Dempsey in the ring against a quote unquote shooting wrestler. So, um, you know that's that's the kind of promoter we're talking about. This is think about this nineteen twenty two, and he's wanting to book a wrestler versus boxer match and put ten thousand dollars in nineteen twenty two on the line. Does that not sound like something that would happen nowadays to you, Seth?
0: Yeah, I mean, a in a way, it's not wrestling per se, but we're getting that it's probably going to be one of the biggest pay per view draws of all time, if not the biggest, prob- probably the biggest in the rumored Floyd Mayweather uh, Conor McGregor fight.
1: Sure, sure. Well, and I, I, I mean, how long ago was it? I mean, Ronda Rousey was only what two WrestleManias ago, mm-hmm. with the little, the little segment with Rock. We had Floyd against Big Show back in was it? Uh, WrestleMania 24.
0: I think yeah, I think yeah, it was, course, it was yeah, about it was. 10 about 10 years ago, yeah.
1: Muhammad, Muhammad Ali was it was the guest, special guest ref at the first Wrestlemania. Even in the 70s there was uh Andre
0: the Giant and and Chuck mm mm-hmm.
1: Mhm. Anoki and and Ma Ali. Uh D- Joe Fraser's a special referee in the main event of the second Starcade. So you can see what what while we talk about the Gold Dust Trio, how the things they did really changed the wrestling business to what we know it is today. Here's a great example, Billy Sandow pulling out something in 1922 that sounds like something that Vince McMahon would do today, you know? Um, That's just, I mean, there's a lot of other things he did, but I thought that was one really good story that was probably the most famous, to give you an idea of what kind of promoter he was. He truly was about, a promoter, and I think a lot of fans don't understand that, both of old school and modern wrestling, promoter's job is not to book the show. Seth will talk about that in a little while when he talks about toots. a promoter show is about to promote the show to get as many butts as he can in the seats. It's about the hype, you know, and, and Sandow was great at that. And, and I think a guy who would put up his entire uh, business in a wrestling match kind of tells you the kind of individual you're, you're, you're dealing with. Don't you think Seth? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, he's not afraid, not afraid to take a chance and not afraid to, to kind of, to lay it all out there on the line and I think that's an essential trait for a good promoter. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been documented. McMahon put up everything for the, he owned for the first WrestleMania. It was, I mean, if it failed, he was going to go bankrupt. Uh, what say you when it comes to a promoter kind of having to have that, that particular aspect to him? Just that, you know, d- you know damn the torpedoes, you know, full steam ahead kind of mentality. You think it's important, not important? And did Sandow kind of fit that bill?
0: I think it is important. I mean, I am obviously not a hugely financially successful person, but you hear the stories told of people that built their fortunes. They didn't do it being afraid of taking chances. You you, you are going to hear the people who, yeah, okay, they had to get a second mortgage for their home, or yeah, maybe they had had to sell the Cadillac and start driving a a Honda or something like that. Right. Um, And promoting... You have to be I'm trying to come up with the right word to say it, but gutsy, you know, yeah. And, and you also have to be, for lack of a better term, I'm not meaning it as a negative, but a sellout. Yeah, <laughs> you are coming up with a way to sell your stuff, or your project, or your whatever to the your masses. Product. Yeah, in, in the hopes that you reap the benefits of your. Uh, of your business savvy, of your your selling ability.
1: I mean, and think about it, ten thousand dollars in nineteen twenty. Ten thousand dollars is a good chunk of change in, by today's day, but nineteen twenty-two. Yeah, we're, t- we're we're probably talking the equivalent of millions. Yeah, and this was his own personal money. A guy who had lost everything he had through a dumb bet against another wrestler made his money back through being a savvy businessman. He's willing to put it on the line again. You know, I think that's I think that's about uh, as good a statement as you could put to what Billy Sandow was. And I think that all the great promoters throughout history owe a lot to Billy Sandow, whether you liked him or not, because he essentially was the first modern day promoter like that. Uh, You know, uh, I I don't think that it's, it's it's unheard of and it's been said before, but you know, uh, wrestling promoters are often compared to PT Barnum. Um, and I think there's a little bit of P.T. Barnum in and Billy Sandow, there's a little bit of P.T. Barnum and Byrne Gagne and and Jim Crockett and Vince McMahon and any other great promoter you can name, don't you think?
0: Absolutely. I mean, when you are being a promoter and you're trying to uh, sell people to get their butts in the seats, mm-hmm. in, in a way you're kind of like that that carnival guy. Step right up! Step right up! You know, come one, come all. Right. You know, the hype you, man. You, the Yeah, marker. yeah. exactly. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, from a personal standpoint, as a former wrestler myself, this is also laying the groundwork for what is pretty much common to this day. Uh, Vince McMahon is a rare exception of promoters, and the more successful promoters often tended to be guys who used to be wrestlers. You know, there's another thing I think where Billy Sandow kind of laid the groundwork. Outside of, you know, Ted Turner, um, Vince McMahon, and and the Crockett's, you know, just about every successful promoter you can think of was a former wrestler, weren't they? Well, even then, David
0: Crockett was a wrestler. I mean, he didn't have well for, uh, a, you know, a, a, for short a very time. brief time. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, right. But I mean, you think of Stu Hart, Eddie Graham, Fritz Von Erich, uh, you know, uh, uh, Baba, Inoki, uh, Bill Watts. Uh, you, the list goes on. Bill Watts, L- Leroy, Leroy McGurk before him. You know, Joe Blanchard. Uh, you name it, all the promoters you can think of, with the exception of the Crockett's and, and Vince, they all were former, they all were former wrestlers. Uh, to a smaller level, Paul Heyman in ECW, Jim Cornette in in Smoky Mountain, the guys running ROH now, you know, Jerry them. and Jeff Jarrett. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. Nick Goulas was a wrestler, so it, 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 when you look at the Gold Dust trio, it's it's easy on the surface to see, okay, yeah, so they changed it from a shoot to a work yeah they changed it they, you know they, they they gave an undercar. they did this at uh, billy sandow and toots mont and ed stranger lewis as we talk about three of these guys you'll begin to see that almost every level they kind of laid the ground for what wrestling became and what it has always been and what it is to this day but i uh, you know that that's a little look into billy sandow he's the money he's the promoter of the hype man talk about the brains a little bit for the folks seth tell them a little bit about toots mont
0: Okay, well, Tootsmont was born in the late 1800s and also was a wrestler. Was a wrestler around the time of World War I and also worked with Farmer Burns. And upon the twilight of his wrestling career, this is where we're trying to getting into that late teens era. Uh,
1: You're talking like post-World post, post War I, but pre-Depression, pre-crash of the Right.
0: Right. Absolutely. And as we said at the top of the show, he started realizing that wrestling just was not drawing as well. Uh, whether I'm right that it was baseball and football or other stuff, or whether it was like you said, uh, maybe the, the government trying to clamp down on gambling. It's probably a mixture of those two.
1: Unfortunately, like we said, we don't have anybody we can talk to from that era, but we can only speculate. Right.
0: And he was able to convince Strangler Lewis and uh, Billy Sandow that the, the days of wrestling, as they grew up on it, are pretty much over. You know, they can either pack up and go home and find something else to do, or they can reinvent the wheel. And that's where the concept of slam-bang Western-style wrestling came from. We, we kind of talked about their run for about the better part of 10 years through the, through the 20s. Ed Strangler-Lewis was the nigh-undefeated champion who only dropped the title here and there for a money program, and he and he always won it back. But it's also worth noting with Toots that he went on to success after the breakup of the Gold Dust Trio because he helped run shows in Madison Square Garden when there hadn't been wrestling in Madison Square Garden for like something like 10 years. Think about that, folks, for a minute. Wrestling was barred from Madison Square Garden in the early 20th century because of the stigma of the you know the gambling and the the shady tactics and such. Now Toots did spar with with Strangler, and that's probably where their business partnership came from. But there are several other names that Toots is associated with. He helped train a guy by the name of Stu Hart. He helped train a guy by the name of Bill Watts. He recruited a guy by the name of Antonio Rocca. He promoted Capitol Wrestling with a man named Jess McMahon. And yes, that's the same McMahon. That is actually Vince's grandfather, the father of Vince Sr. And so he co-founded Capital Wrestling in 1953 with Jess McMahon. And that's really where Antonio Rocca comes in. And Capital was then part of the NWA. Well, fast forward about 10 years, and Capital Wrestling breaks from the NWA, and Vince Senior works with Toots, and they form, they rename Capital Wrestling into the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Of course, the WWWF would eventually morph into the WWE. You can kind of argue that Capital Wrestling eventually molded into the WWE, but there, there was a renaming and a rebranding of the company. If you look at the history of both Capital and WWWF, they're, they're kind of listed in history as being separate companies, especially since WWE looks at the beginning of the WWE title as being the Buddy Rogers run in 1963. But the funny thing is Vince Sr. wanted to run with Buddy Rogers, and I think the kind of worked WWE history thing of it is Buddy wasn't drawing as well, and so they ran with Bruno. Well, the bitter truth is that Vince Sr. was not high on this Bruno Sammartino guy. He thought he would be a mid-card guy for a couple of years, and it was Toots that convinced Vince Sr. to run with Bruno Sammartino on top. And that's really what kind of was his last major contribution to the wrestling world, it seems, because at least by what information I've been able to gather through uh, internet and Wikipedia and some of the books we're talking about, uh, what really did Toots in as a booker and as a matchmaker and such, was television. Wrestling was becoming more and more prevalent on television, and Toots was used to booking the traveling show, where you do a show, you book a finish, and then you come back later to continue the program, whereas wrestling was becoming a weekly television show to promote the big events at at the local arena or, or the garden and such. So you have a guy who worked as a wrestler, he worked as the policeman, as we said. He was an enforcer. He came up with just about all the dirty screwjob finishes you can think of to do in <laughs> the baby face. He came up with the double countout. He'd come up with the double disqualification. He'd come up with the foreign object behind the referee's back, all that that carnival stuff. That really was kind of the brainchild of to- Toots Mont in the 20s, and that that's the type of stuff that still carries over into wrestling today.
1: So. You remember, do you remember when we did the tribute show for Dusty on the A1 podcast? Mm-hmm. And we discussed at length the Dusty finish. And Norco asked me to explain to the listeners what a Dusty finish was. And so I did. And I said then that the Dusty finish was probably something Eddie Graham, he got from Eighty Graham. It was named the Dusty finish, but he wasn't the first booker to use it. I guarantee you the first booker to use the Dusty finish was probably Toots Mon. It probably should be called yeah. the Toots finish, not the Dusty finish this I whole think, idea of 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 a ref bump and all that kind of stuff, or at least the fans going home thinking they saw one thing and then finding out when they come back they they didn't because things got changed that kind of of mentality is what Toots brought, I think is what you're trying to say, aren't you right right
0: i now again, none of us were there, but what it sounds like what Toots would do when it was a uh screw job finish was the heel would cheat to win it, it wasn't necessarily a fact of the babyface won and then it and then it got taken then it got taken away from him. By an overruling down the road, by a, gov- I
1: mean, yeah, a governing body, exactly, yeah,
0: right. Because there was no TV to tune into next week right. to see the, the the fallout of the big show you just attended.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, and that's that's funny. I just thought of something else too. As you, you talked about he he booked the traveling shows. We've talked about how once the territories died, and now what we have now, it's you know the OBE comes to your town maybe two three times a year tops. It isn't the, you know the same town every every night of this week every week like during the territories. So, wrestling's kind of come full circle cuz that's what they were doing in the Gold Dust Trio days. They're doing what they do now where you might only get the, the wrestling show, you know, once every two or three two or three times a year, you know. So, um and, and I know that this is completely unrelated to the Gold Dust Trio, but this is his classic wrestling memories. I want to clarify something. You you're partially right on on the thing with Toots and 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 Vince senior leaving the NWA and all that. What happened was Lou Thez was the champion of the NWA at the time. The NWA uh, voted for him to be the champion. Vince was against it because, for whatever reason, Lou never drew in the Northeast. But Buddy Rogers did. And, so, and Buddy was, you know, had been, just been the NWA champion. He wanted to go with Buddy. And when the, when the board said no, that's when he withdrew. But Vince still held a seat and would be asked for advice when things came up. You know, that's how well-respected Vince Sr. was by the guys in the NWA. Unfortunate for Vince and t- for Vince Sr. was that, you know, Buddy Rogers was his guy. Uh, Buddy Rogers had a heart attack right after he had been given the WWF belt. I mean, literally within like a month or so. And they had to drop it to Bruno. And uh, you are correct. Bruno was, was, was Toot's idea. Vince didn't want to push Bruno. So think about that. The last he starts out the change in wrestling toots does in the 1920s to the worked aspects that we have today. And all these finishes you're talking about and time limit draws and go ahead and throw punches and all the things we talked about in the twenties, all the way up to his, almost his death in the, you know, in the sixties. And he books the first big champion of the sixties in Bruno San Martino pushes for him. That's impressive. If you think about it, this guy oversaw the reign of Ed Tranger Lewis, and he oversaw, 40 years later, the ascension of Bruno San Martino. Two of the most legendary names in wrestling. That That's kind of impressive, don't you think?
0: Absolutely. And whether this was Toots' idea or not, I would imagine it was. But uh, you can't quote me on that. You brought up Buddy's heart attack. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruno beat Buddy Rogers in 48 seconds on May 17, 1963. And that's exactly why. Because the guy's recovering from a heart attack. But... I think it's a safe bet. The regular world did not know that. Sure. So they saw Bruno just beat a former NWA champion in under a minute.
1: That's, that's genius. That's, that's, that's strong. That's real strong, isn't it? And and you know, um, from my understanding, Toots would do stuff like that. We talked about earlier how he understood that it wasn't just the shooters you needed. You needed, you needed these guys like a Gus Sonnenberg, like a, like a Wayne Big Munn like a uh, Bronco Nagurski legitimate, tough guys, but not wrestlers, you know, guys that had name value from their football, or boxing careers. And so he's the one that pushed for them. And he was the one that would have to explain to, to Ed Lewis, Hey, I need you to do the honors for this guy because think about the business we can make when you come back, you know? So that's, that's pretty impressive. Having dealt with a few bookers in my day, <laughs> I, I, he, he he might not have been the, the, the he might probably you know he was a salty crudgingly old guy I'm sure but a genius in and and at a certain way if you think about it
0: yeah I believe so and you know when you're making that much money doing what you're doing you know as they say money talks so uh-huh. you're probably more likely to get the challenger to lay down for strangler because it's probably going to be a bigger gate and there's only those select yep. few that toots would see as okay this guy can beat strangler and then we come back uh, uh, sometime later and strangler wins it back and we probably ma- we probably
1: make more money at the gate right exactly exactly i mean just so we've talked about billy and we've talked about toots i guess that leaves us one thing and I, I guess you want me to talk a little bit about strangler lewis for everybody yes
0: please i can talk a little sure. bit but <laughs> not not much more than what i've already said
1: uh, okay well Ed Lewis, Ed Strangler Lewis, is probably – he's kind of been lost on time, but I think that his importance can't be downplayed. I think – and people could argue Gotch and Hank Schmidt, and I get that. But I think because of this, the, the, the change in styles, Ed Lewis was probably the first world champion that we as modern fans would see as a world champion. And what I mean by that is the way he looked, the way he carried himself, the guy was, you know, very dapper and and wore suits. And, you know, he was a a contemporary of guys like Jack Dempsey, guys like Babe Ruth. And in the 20s, he was as much in the the media as they were. And he would go out and and he would be seen in public with these guys sometimes. So, uh, I mean, think, you know, think. Rick Flair, think Hulk Hogan, think Bruno, think these guys that we think of as world champions nowadays and the way they carried themselves. Ed Lewis was the first one to do that. But, you know, Ed, Ed Lewis was actually born Robert Herman Julius Frederick in, on June 30th, 1891. Uh I think we can see why he changed his name. Robert Herman yeah. Julius Frederick does not does not really in, uh you know like this not engender fear, I think, in a lot of people.
0: But anyway. Because yeah, there would be people like me who would say, oh, yeah, well, what's your last name? <laughs> exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's got four first names. <laughs> <laughs> he actually took his name from Evan Strangler Lewis, who was one of the shooters from the, the, the generation before his, uh, and became famous for his sleeper hold that earned him the moniker Strangler. Uh, apparently, he was wrestling in a match in France, and they didn't understand what it was and they thought he was strangling him and it was reported as such in the papers there in france and thus became you know the the moniker strangler he um his 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 sleeper was not uh the sleeper that we see today you know it's not the almost like a rear naked choke it it was more like a side headlock dragon sleeper kind of combo And he didn't use it to put guys out. He actually would use it as a pinning hold. He could take guys down to the mat with it and pin them with it. Uh, But he was a shooter. uh, A a great shooter. Um, he, He won his first world title in 1920 from Joe Stecker. I did check my notes while we were at break. So I was correct on that. So he actually came from the era before and was really the one bridging the gap. And the reason why I think he was chosen by sandow and, and and toots to be the guy in this little organization not only because sandow was already managing him, because he was such the great shooter we're talking about they never had to worry about a double cross i mean and he could literally take the belt anytime he wanted uh if he so chose so um but he would like say he was a fascinating guy he carried himself like a champion he would as part of this touring act that billy had the idea for he would go into the town, in you know, ahead of time in advance, in a suit and talk to the local media and have his picture in the paper and go to the boys' club or the YMCA and do a wrestling demonstration. Uh, and even with that, though, he was a bit of a subtle heel. He understood that the the because he was the champion, people naturally wanted to see him beat. I mean, everybody wants to see the upset, don't they? Absolutely. So he was the he was probably one of the first to, to be a heel, and, and kind of, but he did it. It was as a more of a, of an of a, of a sub you know uh, not an overt heel but like a subversive type heel just real subtle type things. I, I guess I'm mean, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this, but maybe uh, think Roman Reigns, <laughs> think Randy Orton for modern you know um, compared even when even when Randy's a baby face like he is now he still has heel has a heel persona don't you think?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. The way he'll turn and look at somebody and you it's right. like you, you see the gears turning inside his head.
1: Right. Well, that was something Ed Lewis did. You know, it was very subtle, but it was there. Um, I, a great story about him, to give you an idea of what kind of shooter he was and, and, and how the Gold Dust Trio as a whole, but Ed Lewis in particular, kind of paved the way for and, and laid the ground for what is wrestling today. We mentioned that there were other promotions going on, and one of the major ones was Joe Stecker, the man he had defeated for the world title in 1920.
0: And again, this goes back to... Former wrestlers becoming promoters
1: right, right exactly, and so so apparently uh, Stanislaus Tobisco, the man who Larry Zobisco got his name from, there's a lot of these th- tributes we 're seeing now aren 't we <laughs> we 're seeing a pattern forming here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Stanislaus law was a shooter, was an old school wrestler from the you know the earlier days, like Billy sandow and toots and and, and, and Stecker and these guys, but he was one of the many. You know, underneath wrestlers, mid card, upper mid card guys that Sandow had. And he wanted, they wanted to build up Wayne Big Munn, who was a former football player, as a legitimate contender for Ed Lewis. Of course, Ed Lewis is not worried about it. He knows he can beat either one of them at any time because he's such a great shooter, right? Well, they decided, you know, on an undercard to have Wayne Munn beat Stanislaw Sabisco. And Stanislav kind of balks at the idea because he's a shooter. I don't put over this football player. He don't know how to wrestle. But Toots talks him into it. And, and uh, unbeknownst to them, he actually goes to Stecker and takes money from Stecker to legitimately hook Wayne Munn. And he does. And just humiliates him. I mean, just he stretches him in front of a live crowd on the undercard of a of, of, you know, show with Ed Lewis on top. And the word gets out that Stecker, Stecker's involved, and uh, no, no one's quite sure what happened, but eventually Ed Lewis steps in, speaks to Stecker, speaks to Stanislaus, and Stanislaus, for too long, is back in, under the employ of Sandow and no longer Stecker, and and, and agrees to do the honors for, <laughs> for Ed Lewis, uh, which didn't matter because everyone believes Ed could have Ed took him anyways if he wanted to. So, you know... An idea of a double cross, this is also something I think people, you know, uh, will the WWE ever let us forget the Montreal Screwdrop? No. My point being, this is in the 1920s. It was going on back then, too. Was it, of course, this was, was a guy going into business for himself as opposed to something the, you know, the promotion planned. And, and who knows? Stanislaus Abisko got a world title shot in a main event against, uh, against Ed Lewis out of it. But, you know. He didn't balk on on doing the honors for Ed Lewis. Let's put it that way, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just after he had stretched this big dude, um, and and I know that both Luthes and Vern Gagne, both pretty well respected shooters in their own rights, have have openly said publicly that Ed Stranger Lewis was the greatest wrestler who ever lived, and that he could he was li- literally unbeatable, and that he could beat anyone he wanted any time if he deemed it wanted to, and. He, and, you know, for him to do the honors, truly was doing the honors. Uh, when two shooters like Luthes and Vern Gagne say you're the greatest wrestler of all time and you're the greatest shooter of all time, what does that say to you, Seth? That he's probably the greatest shooter of all time. <laughs> you're not going to argue that fact? You don't have, <laughs> there's no retorter or pithy comeback for that at all? I, <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I think it's
0: safe to say he, uh, if he's as good as, as uh, they say they are, as they say he is, uh, you could bring him into a locker room full of uh minks, yeah yeah <laughs> or uh, or even some of the new age guys who who think that they 're tough because they can uh do a bunch of cool moves yeah okay let 's see how long that lasts
1: yeah exactly uh but uh, he he was very close to luthez i mean later in his career after he had retired from active wrestling, he mentored luthez and trained trained luthez so that's Probably, the reason Luthez was such a great shooter. Was he learned from the best? So, um, Ed Strangler Lewis is—I is think—is a very fascinating character. And and you know, everybody, when they talk about great world champions, and this is meaning no disrespect to the gentleman I'm getting ready to list, but they think of you'll hear names like, oh well, about Luthez, what about Pat O'Connor, what about Buddy Rogers, what about you know Bruno? None of them are where they are without without Ed Lewis. I mean, Ed Lewis, like I said, in my opinion, and all due respect to Frank Gotch was the first true world champion is what we see a world champion being. And he is a throwback. He was a, a guy who was in a worked business, but was a shooter. And that essentially was the template for a a traveling world champion up until Vince pretty much took everything over, wasn't it? Yeah. We've yeah, talked about that, that, that before.
0: I mean, we could do a whole show on Ric Flair easily, but I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think Ric Flair was nec- certainly not, as badass of a shooter as some of the guys like like but Vern he was Strangler, probably
1: the so. first that wasn't like yeah but he was probably the first that wasn't like that everybody up till rick flair were just like i mean it was lutez it was Vern gagne it was it, it was jack briscoe it was pat o'connor it was harley race harley you race yeah point?
0: yeah you know two episodes ago when we reviewed starcade 83 and we talked about tony shivani interviewing harley race and here's harley race in a blue plaid mm-hmm. suit and he's looking at the camera, and you just want to turn away
1: and back away slowly. <laughs> you know? Right, and it, and it goes back to that Stanislaus Habisco story I told. Uh, you know That's what wrestling was from the 1920s until the 1980s, for 60 years. You needed, there was always a concern for a double cross, and so a world champion had to be a guy who could handle himself. And so every champion until Ric Flair, until the, the, the cable television era, they were exactly what Ed Lewis was. They were, they were a tough guy who could take the belt if they needed to. So, you know, Ed Lewis was was like I said, he wore the suits and he was a, he was a, he was a he's kind of fallen wayside. I think pop culture has forgotten him, but you can find the news clippings. He was he was as well known and as popular as the biggest sports stars of his era. Uh, and I don't know if you can say that about every top wrestling star of other eras. You, you, know, you can say about Stone Cold and Rock, probably say it about Hogan, um, maybe a little bit about Bruno. But there's a lot of other guys from other eras. Uh, to a certain extent, but none of them, I think were as, as big, a star in the fans eyes with other sports athletes as Ed Stranger Lewis was in his era. And so, I mean, he's the perfect guy to be the champion. He looks the part, he can play the subtle heel. He's a shooter, so he can take the belt if he needs to. Uh, and he can, you know, it, it, he's the, mo- he is what is in my opinion, the first modern world heavyweight champion. Anything else you want to add about about Ed Lewis?
0: Well, you mentioned about how he was the heel, and you know, I know it's going to sound like a joke, but it really isn't. Uh, well, he went by the name Strangler. I don't think he. I don't True. think a guy named Strangler is going to be a babyface.
1: Ah, uh, as the frogs over in France, they just didn't know what he was doing. You know, it Again, it's French. <laughs> I was a kid. I, I, I've been to France. It's a beautiful country. I, they get a lot of flack, you know. I mean, it's it is what it is. But uh, yeah, I, I think. Uh, <laughs> you got a point though about so I never thought about that. You you making me kinda laugh now that I think about it. But but I think, you know, we've broke it down here for you what the Gold Dust Trio was and who they were. You can truly see that wrestling hasn't changed that much. I mean, we talked about promotional wars, we talked about double crosses, we talked about, you know, uh, a, a heavyweight champion need to take care of himself, the the sellout that a promoter needs to be, the booker have you know, can can you see now that you've done all this research and we've talked about it for about an hour now how the gold dust trio is often seen by historians as essentially the birth of what we consider professional wrestling to this day
0: yeah uh, to give the music analogy you know it's like kind of like you know the birth of rock and roll being the fusing of country and and rockabilly you know right. i think you know it, it's not it's not the best analogy but it's the first one that pops into my head just cuz you sure. know you 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 know, you know my my love of uh, country and rockabilly. Right. It, w- it, it was those guys recording, like Bill Haley and such, who kind of fused these elements together to create the rockabilly sound, which eventually became rock and roll, which eventually spawned off into heavy metal and
1: prog and uh, very Pop loud, rock yeah, and, uh, very loud and
0: obnoxious music. You know that that all has its roots in in the fifties. So I so think I, you that's
1: can- that's a good analogy. I think.
0: Uh, a lot of the stuff that we still see today, with the good guy, the bad guy, who who will cheat to win if he has to, and the all-American good guy, the, you know the baby, the you know the the good-looking guy that that the ladies will love. That's really where this kind of has its roots. Now, I I know it, you could argue that it goes back to the pioneer days with guys like William Muldoon, but you know stuff was. A lot less of a work then, and again, we're going back to the days where it was well, guys grappling for for hours on end.
1: Let's take your analogy, and, and it's, it's true. The William Muldoons and the George Hackensmiths and the and the and you know the, the Frank Gotch, those guys, they're your Robert Johnsons. They're your Muddy Waters. They're your your you know those guys that we're talking about. They they had a very small niche audience. Uh, talented musicians, no doubt about it but laid the groundwork for what became rock and roll. But then here comes Elvis and Bill Haley and Buddy Holly and little Richard. And they throw a little bit of the pizzazz and the entertainment in and, and, and make the music a little more upbeat. That's essentially what the gold dust trio were. If you want to carry that analogy out. So I think that's very true. Yeah, I think it's fair. Yeah. Um, did you enjoy studying up on this, on this subject? I know you said that you don't know that much about this era. So you found out a little information yourself and preparing for the show. I'm guessing.
0: Yeah, it was a huge learning experience. It's probably the, the most I've had to learn for one of these shows in, in a long time. I felt like I was going to school again. But, <laughs> you know, that's that, that's a good problem to have because the whole reason why I wanted to do Classic Wrestling Memories, I mean, we, we both talked about it, is to talk about the the stuff that a lot of these other wrestling podcasts aren't talking about. You know, where right. else right. on, on uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or any of the other multitudes of podcasts are you gonna hear people talking for an hour about wrestling in the nineteen twenties. No, not many. I I don't want to put myself over here or put our put ourselves <laughs> over here, but as you say, Train, if you don't put yourself over, nobody else is going to, so
1: it's the oldest oldest line in the business. <laughs> I I I would I would dare bet that uh at some point Toots Monts told that to a worker. <laughs> Kid, if you don't put yourself over, nobody else will. So there you go. <laughs> to wrap it up, all with the bow. Uh, I, I've really, I really enjoyed looking into this. I, I'm always fascinated. I guess I'm, I'm really fascinated by this era because of what we said earlier. There's so little that we know about it because everything we have is all second and third hand information. Because all these people are no longer with us, and it probably wasn't as great as we, we fantasize it to be. But it doesn't change the importance of what it was. So. I enjoyed it. I hope the listeners enjoyed hearing us talk a little bit about you know the, the beginning of wrestling as a worked business and the change from being a shoot to a, to a full-on work and the, the guys who are right or wrong, historians argue, the guys who are attributed to making that happen. That was the Gold Dust Trio of Billy Sandow, Joseph Tootsmont, and Ed Strangler-Lewis.
0: Absolutely. And folks, if there's an era of wrestling or personalities in wrestling or a promotion or something like that that you'd like to hear us talk about, we're all ears. We do have a Twitter at A1W Podcast. There's a couple of websites. The main website is a1-wrestling.com. However, you can find all of the Classic Wrestling Memory shows at classicwrestlingmemories.com. We do have a comment section there as well. And there is a Facebook at A1 Wrestling. And the show will be posted on the A1 Wrestling facebook you can certainly respond there with any feedback or any as i said era or element of wrestling you'd like us to talk about i can be reached at seth at a1-wrestling.com and train you can be reached at crazy train underscore jb on twitter correct that's right give me a follow folks and give us a listen at apple podcasts you you can subscribe you can give us a review And like I say, like I say, for all my shows, the only thing I ask about reviews is just make them genuine because I'm always looking for ways to, to improve these shows. And I can't really do that without the input of you, the listener. And I really do value your input and value your opinion on what you think would make this show better. So with all that said, Train, anything else you want to add before we kind of tap out for the night?
1: No, just, just, just a little caveat for the, for the listeners We, like we said, we do want suggestions of of anything you'd like to hear about, but just so you know, you got to look forward to in the upcoming weeks. We have discussed doing shows on the original four horsemen. We've talked about doing shows on Bruno San Martino. We've talked about doing shows on the AWA in the late seventies. We've talked about doing shows on, on the beginning of the war between the NWA and the WWF. So these are all things that are on the docket and will be coming soon. Um, depending on how some things go, we've talked about possibly talking about the famous midnight express rock and roll express feud, and if I'm lucky, I can get one or more of the participants in that particular feud to be a guest. Keep your fingers crossed, listeners
0: we're also talking about the uh, original Wrestlemania as well exactly. I mean, we did the first arcade it's only fitting that we do the first
1: wrestlemania and and if I can get a hold of some people, we will have a guest on that podcast who was actually a participant in that 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 show so that's what we're looking for just to give you an idea anything we didn't mention though please let us know or one of those that we did mention you really are really particularly want to hear about let us know about that too
0: with that said we are going to tap out for the night we're going to hit the three count we're going to go to the showers and we'll talk to you folks next week with more classic wrestling memories Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.